0: Grace and peace to you all this morning. I made sure the Bibles were on the tables. If you want to follow the Bible verses, we are in Matthew chapter 5 today. We are going to start going through something people have asked me a couple of times um, right before I left on vacation and even this week while I've been back, they asked a couple of times how... uh, Are we really supposed to live in this world? And I said, well, Jesus covered all that, and he covered it in a couple of pretty short sections, and we can find it in the Sermon on the Mount. It really covers everything in our lives, in one way or another. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, and over the next few weeks we're going to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount. Let me start by telling you that in the first days of the nation of Israel, when they were first newborn from the chains of slavery and the clutches of Egypt, the people all gathered together at the base of a mountain just outside of Egypt, and their Savior, the Creator, spoke to them from the heights of the mountain. So imagine four million people gathered around the base of a mountain, they've been told don't go up it. And all of them, at the same moment, hear the voice of God. Sounds cool, doesn't it? Freak them out. After hearing the first two of the Ten Commandments, they said, Moses, could you ask God not to talk to us anymore? He's kind of scaring us. (laughs) But God said to them that he would be their God if they would be his people if they would live out the purposes that they had been created for, that they would be his people. And for a time, the people did just that. They were encouraged by their salvation and by their God who led them, and they did their best to live the way that he said they could. I mean, they had some false starts and some backward steps like any one of us would on our journey. Well, like, like all of us do on our journeys. But by and large, what they did is they listened to the description of who they could be, and then they did all they could to live up to that. Over time, though, their gaze started to slip. Just shifted off. Where they started with their eyes firmly fixed on their creator, they started looking more and more at the instructions that he had given than at God himself. They became uh, more... uh, trusting of the instructions than they were trusting of God. They began to trust those instructions more than they trusted in God's mercy to the point that they were afraid that if they broke any of the rules, that was it. God was just an angry old man sitting up there with an iron cane waiting for them to step out of line so they'd whack them on the knees. And slowly over centuries, what happened is they became the people of the temple and the people of the, the book that contained their story rather than being the people of God. Does that make sense? Then Jesus came. The first thing Jesus came and said when he began to to minister to the people was repent for the kingdom of God is near. Now repent, a lot of people think the word repent is an angry word. It's not. It is not an angry word. A lot of people try to make it out that way, but all it really means is to turn around or to turn back towards something. So Jesus came, he said, repent, turn around from how you've been living. Turn back towards the God who made you and turn back towards the way that he created you to live. The kingdom is near, but you're not quite living in it anymore. Come back. That was his message. And then Jesus did something one day, which a lot of people have probably done from time to time. But it was something that caught the attention of even the the, the closest of his followers. One day, while he was being followed by this huge multitude of people, hundreds, possibly thousands of people who were following him around, he went up a mountain and began to explain to them how to live lives that they had been created to live. He told them, this is how you could be the people of God. This is how you can be free from the chains that you have allowed to bind you up. And this is how he started. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But this was confusing to the people. Because he couldn't possibly mean what he just said. The, the poor in spirit, those are the people who need more spirit. Right? So these are the ones who are supposed to be part of the reign of the creator are the people who don't have enough spirit. Is that what Jesus is saying? I mean, that's certainly not what people want, right? We want spiritual giants. We want to be spiritual giants. We want to follow spiritual giants. People who are right with God, people who will live out his every command with perfection. Those are the ones we want to follow, right? The people followed the teachings of certain rabbis because those men were very popular, and their teachings seemed strong, and they seemed to be filled with the Spirit of God. And people flocked to Jesus because he seemed to be this man filled with power as well. But here he is telling them that those who have the kingdom are poor in spirit. The people who are aware that they are lacking, the people who seek out more of God rather than being able to stand on their own two feet and declare their own righteousness. Jesus is saying these are the people who have the kingdom of God already. And that must have seemed like totally backwards teaching. It certainly was not what the people were used to hearing. In fact, this teaching led them in exactly the opposite direction of where they had been going. But that makes sense, right? Repent. Turn around. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that was just the foundation that Jesus laid for all that came next. Matthew 5:4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, mourning in that day was not a private matter. Mourning was something uh, very public. A mourner would tear their clothes. They would wear sackcloth. They would take off their, their head coverings and replace them with dirt, just pile dirt on their heads to show that they were sad. Mourners shared their grief very publicly with everyone around them, and here Jesus is telling them to mourn the fact that they're poor in spirit to publicly hold up their own spiritual weaknesses. But in their society, spiritual weakness was condemned. Jesus says those who mourn will be comforted. Who's going to do the comforting? That's probably what the people were asking themselves. Who's going to comfort us? And it's not the leaders of our churches. These are men who routinely stood up to loudly pray to God Thanking him for making them upright citizens instead of, you know, the rest of the rabble of society. Thank you, Lord, for not making me a craven sinner like those people over there. Now, anyone hearing Jesus probably would have said, well, mourning my poverty of spirit, that's going to just get me shunned and rejected by the people around me. I've got too much pride for that. I'm not going to do that. But Jesus didn't give him a whole lot of time to process this either. He was already on to his next point. Verse 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What Jesus just said is, Let go of your foolish, misplaced pride. Now, meek is a word that we've lost the true meaning of in our culture. Um, Maybe because it rhymes, we have associated meekness with weakness. But they are not the same thing. Not even close. Our picture of someone of meek and mild being a wimpy pushover with no power in them is totally, totally wrong. We need to change it when we read it to do away with that idea. We need to restore this word meek to its original glory. It, uh, in the original language, here it is. this word is praeus. Everyone say, praeus. Because I'm going to turn you into Greek scholars. Praeus. It refers to someone who is humble not humbled. Someone who is gentle, not someone who's been gentled. Someone who's given up their selfish pride and embraced humility in its place. Y'all with me on this? Blessed are the use for they will inherit the earth. Or, or to be even more literal, they will inherit the land, is what it says, or the region, perhaps. Which land or region are they going to inherit? Well, Jesus just told them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when God first delivered his message of freedom from the mountaintop outside of Egypt to the people of Israel who had been set free from their bondage, he told them that as his people, they would inherit the land that had been promised to them. And now here we've got Jesus on a mountaintop, sitting there delivering a message of freedom, telling the people around him, how to be God's people, and so how to inherit the land that has been promised to them. Do you think there might be a connection here? Jesus is trying to make a point. There's a pastor named Clarence Jordan. He uh, uh, was a good preacher. He thought that it might help to interpret these first three Beatitudes in modern terms. He came up with uh, this. Blessed are those who face up to their illness because theirs is health. Blessed are they who go to the doctor, for they will be helped. And blessed are they who will take his prescription, for they will inherit the benefit of his knowledge. you got to face the fact things aren't right. you got to go figure out what makes things right. And then you need to do something about it to make things right that makes sense? Blessed are the meek. Now, just like the first two, it was backwards from the common teaching of the day. In Jesus' world, there was a box for the tithes that was placed so that when you put your offering in, it actually rattled down a pipe into a large steel or iron drum. And it made a lot of noise so that everyone could see how much you were giving, so that You could say, look how much I have given in my tithe today. This was a world where prayers were said out loud in the middle of the sanctuary. People did not sit. They would stand and pray loudly. Thank you, Lord, for the many blessings you have given in my life. Because you love me. Because I am a wonderful creation. (laughs) Humility was not really revered. In the first century, let's say your job was to stand and make sure everyone knew how wonderful you were and how great the accomplishments and sacrifices you had made for the church. What would ever want to make people risk themselves the way that Jesus was suggesting? Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I participated in a 40-day fast once. I know you look at me and you think that man has never missed a meal. Well, yeah, I've missed a few. But I participated in a 40-day fast. For me, it lasted 47 hours. I was able to be really spiritual about it for about 30 hours. Yes, I am fasting for the Lord. It's great, but after about 30 hours, there was this uncomfortable gnawing that started in my stomach. And then that little empty cavern in there started to howl. And I started to be consumed by thoughts about food and eating. And I couldn't bring myself to think about anything else. My God became that box of cereal I knew was in the cupboard. <laughs> I prayed to it, Oh, great box of cereal. Please give me the power to resist the honey oat goodness of your crunchy oats. Sour my milk so that it will not tempt me from its cold refrigerator temple. Lead me away from the path to the bowl and the spoon. But I was hungry. I held out thirty-two hours, thirty-six hours, forty hours, forty-five hours. 47 hours and 15 minutes. And then hunger drove me before it, kept my attention focused on the cravings. That whole time, once that started, I just did nothing but think about that box of cereal. That was where my attention was focused until I finally rationalized my failure. I said, well, it was just a bad time for me to start a 40 day fast. Um, I'm sure 40 hours of fasting is just as deep and meaningful as a whole month of fasting could be. And um, you know, I just I hungered for that cereal, I thirsted for that milk, and because I did, I was filled with them, and quite frankly, I did not care one bit what anyone else thought of me at that point, because my decision was to break down and eat, and I was filled with what I was craving. The things we set our focus on, the ones that we allow ourselves to dwell on, the cravings we let run wild through our mind and our heart and our soul, those are the things that we pursue. Those are always the things that we pursue. Do you want a relationship with your Creator? Do you want to be part of the Kingdom of Heaven? Is there a need for righteousness that gnaws inside of you? God wants to fill up that emptiness with fullness. So what we need to know is how do we get to the all-you-can-eat buffet of righteousness? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And this is no cold, condescending mercy like someone in power offering their victim you know, relief in exchange for whatever service they can provide. This is a warm, sharing mercy of brotherhood where one person gives to another whatever compassion or forgiveness is available to them to give. And Jesus uses this term mercy in this open way that when you hear it in its original language, it is clear that this is mercy that's supposed to be shown to everyone. His meaning would have been very clear to those who are listening. Sharing mercy is a requirement for being filled with righteousness. If you crave that righteousness, you have to show mercy. And that means both sharing physical resources and spiritual ones. How much money do we hold back from people in need so we can make an extra trip to Starbucks? How often do you hold on to a knot of bitterness about someone rather than forgiving those who have offended us? These things, these are, they're petty selfishnesses, is what they are. But those are the things that we tend to cling to, the little things. These are the things that take up room in our hearts. That's the space God wants us to open up for him. So we'll have to let go of those little things. Verse 8, Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are the pure in heart, because they will see God. We can't see God if we don't let him in. If you refuse to see, you will not see. There's this strange medical condition. It's called sighted blindness. People who have it, people who suffer from it, complain that they have lost all or a portion of their sight. In one case study that I I ran across, there's a man who had lost sight in his right eye completely absolutely blind. With his left eye covered, he said everything was dark. He couldn't see a single thing. And his doctors tried this simple test where they would hold up a number of fingers and have him say how many fingers they were holding up. And at first he just refused to even participate in this test because he's like, "I, I can't see. I'm blind out of that eye. There's nothing there. Any answer i give you is just going to be a guess. But they kept badgering him until he finally did the test. And once they convinced him to try, what they found is that he was right every time. No matter how many fingers they held up, he always knew exactly how many it was. Every guess was perfect. Because even though his brain was refusing to see anything that his right eye was viewing, it was still receiving that image data and processing it. So he had his sight, but something inside of him refused to see. An impure heart is our refusal to see God. God is always there. God is always in view. No matter how difficult, dire, challenging, weird the situation you're in may seem to be, God is always in view. And if we allow ourselves, we can see him. And once we see him clearly, we can take up his cause to see the world reconciled through his love. That's part of what being pure in heart means. But Jesus goes on in verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called the children of God. Peacemakers. This is the tough one. This is one I struggle with all the time. To be a peacemaker means to hold no hostility towards someone else. It's to approach anyone with your hands open. It's to give someone a hug in the face of anger. It's not the opposite of war, it is the absence of disturbance. Being a peacemaker is not just a relationship, it's a state of being. In the fullest sense of the word, it's wholeness, it's health, it's well-being, good fortune, stability, and happiness. It is love, and it is reason, and it's placing the well-being of the other ahead of your own, no matter who the other is. Peacemaking is completely alien in our culture. It is not something that we are good with. In fact, it's so alien, I struggled for hours to put any words to its meaning at all. Because I cannot explain it in terms that make sense in a world where our main idea of peace is to kill or frighten anyone else so that they have to be peaceful towards us. Nations do it with guns, bosses do it with their position, friends do it with their words. We cannot seem to seek peace without trying to force everyone else to be peaceful to us, right? Rather than us just offering our peace to others. We take the idea of being a peacemaker to mean that we have to make others show peace to us. But that is not what it says. The problem with that idea is that no person has ever been able to force someone else to not have any hostility, You cannot make anyone else be at peace. The only person you can inspire to make peace is yourself. Is that true or am I making that up? Now, I'm good at preaching this. I'm not always very good at this. When the World Trade Center buildings were destroyed, I know that was a long time ago now, I cheered when we sent forces into Afghanistan to teach the people there how to live in peace. We've now been teaching them for over 18 years. This is now twice as long as the longest war in U.S. history. Well, other longest wars in human history apparently our teaching methods are flawed because the people there still haven't learned to live in peace people are still getting killed there every day both sides of the conflict maybe we need to try something else maybe maybe we need to start by not shooting people Hey, baby steps, right? What if we tried to teach peace by showing peace instead of forcing peace? What do you think that would look like? I can think of one example. I have one great example of someone teaching peace by showing peace. Think about Jesus. There were soldiers, they had stripped him, they'd beaten him, they'd maimed him, they were nailing him to the wooden beam that he was going to die on. And Jesus showed them peace. While they were pounding the spikes through his wrists, he cried out to God on their behalf, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. While they were killing him, he was worried for them. It's hard to understand. But it's an example of how we're expected to live. And I bet it's like the mercy thing. Until you've learned to show peace, you won't know how to deal with someone else showing peace to you. Until you've learned to show mercy, you won't understand when someone shows mercy to you. If someone shows you peace and you're not expecting it, you might lash out at them. You might try to bring them back to the way of war because you don't understand the way of peace. You might even go out of your way to try to make their lives harder in an effort to provoke them to bring them back to your level so that you don't feel so small. Jesus says, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How could Jesus show peace to his executioners while they were killing him? Because he knew this. He knew this. He wanted to make sure anyone who followed him knew this, that they remembered this. I mean, the teachers of the time had this strange idea that being righteous meant your life was going to be perfect. That everything was going to be smooth and easy, and you would prosper. In the uh, ninth chapter of his biography of Jesus, uh, John reports a discussion where the closest followers of Jesus saw a man who'd been born blind. And so they said, "Jesus, Jesus, see that guy who was born blind? Is that because he sinned, or is it because his parents sinned? They didn't have any concept that someone might have difficulty in life if there wasn't sin involved. They couldn't imagine there was any reason for earthly discomfort other than heavenly disapproval. But Jesus set them straight there. He said, no, 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 this man was born blind so that he could promote the glory of God. And Jesus, in this final beatitude, is trying to remind them, look, no matter how much you're persecuted, think about the prophets. These guys were sent by God to share God's message. They did exactly what they were told. They were persecuted, beaten, exiled, and in some cases killed. Just because you're doing the will of God doesn't mean your life is going to be nothing but roses and cream. Sorry. Sorry. people who blind themselves to the word of their creator often lash out at those who are doing what God says. Now, that's eight sayings that Jesus just gave us right there. And they're very simple sayings, or they seem to be really simple sayings, but they would have been so challenging to the people around him right then because they flew in the face of all the common teachings of the time. To the closest disciples, they would have seemed like this is Jesus giving us a set of instructions. This is uh, how to live life, like eight easy steps to eternity with God. Here you go. But when you take them all together, they give us a lot more than that. Those eight things actually weave together to become the fabric of Christian society. Everything Jesus asks us to do is tied into these eight things. And as we covered a couple of weeks ago, really, Jesus only ever asked us to do one thing. And that was to, to love, to care about others. So these eight things are our, our basis, our fabric. And as a church, if we were created from these teachings, we would be a group of people who could acknowledge their brokenness to one another, acknowledge that need for more of god's spirit in our lives to help us grow through whatever we're at whatever we're at to become more like we were created to be we would mourn publicly over our weaknesses we would find ourselves comforted by god and supported by one another how many people think of church as a place to go to share your brokenness yeah that's the way it's supposed to be most people are afraid to go to church if everything isn't fixed you know what? Everything's not fixed. My life isn't perfect. I wear the pretty clothes. That doesn't mean anything. The idea of church is we're supposed to come together to learn how to let God's spirit in and how to bring us all along together. We have to do this without being superior or trying to make others less than we are and in doing this what we do is we live inside that kingdom of god that jesus promises us is right here kingdom of god is at hand and that craving to be closer to god and to live more and more as his people grows inside of all of us then (coughs) as every new understanding or every revealed mercy adds to the that already is part of our experience, we want to be more and more part of that family, that God family. And in our family, then, members forgive and assist others in need and find themselves shown the mercy that they need. Every step of purity brings new closeness to the creator, and we start to see his attributes in each other, and eventually what happens is we find ourselves face-to-face with God in ways we never imagined through one another. And as we build and grow our society in this way, we find that others want to join. Other people want to be part of that group. When you read through the book of Acts, this is what happened in the early church. The people all came together. They shared their brokenness. They sought the spirit of God. They tried to grow beyond what they were to become more and more what they're created to be. And people outside said, I want that. I want to be part of that. Teach me about this Jesus and the things that he said. Because we are the people of God. We will pursue his peace and his reconciliation wherever we're invited. Wherever we're invited. And not everyone will accept the message. But we need to remember who we represent. Who do we represent? Jesus. Jesus. So it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Do we represent Jesus well? That's what we need. If we represent Jesus, He holds us in His hand at all times, even when enemies tear at us. What's the worst thing someone on this world could do? Hurt you, maybe kill you. I, I got to tell you, death is not as fatal as it seems because I follow a risen Savior. As long as we hold fast to God, he will hold fast to us. And if we lose anything here on earth, we can know that we will be repaid in full and then some, because that's what's promised us. And when we stand before the one who made all things, we know that it doesn't matter what one or two things we had here, or lost here, right? Because who created all of it? God. Well, if he created it the first time, he could do it again. not much to lose when you lose it to the hands of the one who creates it all in the first place. Does this sound at all like something you'd want to be part of? A movement you'd want to be part of? I, I know I'm asking a lot. This is asking a lot. Jesus knew he was asking a lot of the people who were following him. To live the lives we were created to live in the community we were meant to participate in is both an awesome and a frightening thing. And in church, uh, we like to oversimplify this a little bit by saying, well, what I'm doing is I'm trying to let go of the wheel so that Jesus can steer. You ever, you ever hear that? Jesus, take the wheel. Yeah. Um, the truth is it's harder than that uh, because Jesus at no point, God at no point in scripture says, let me steer your life. What he says is, let me show you how to steer. See the difference? If you're sitting in the driver's seat, don't take your hands off the wheel. If you're not sitting in the driver's seat, you don't want the car moving. If there's no one there, that's a problem. What you really need to do is learn to fully live the way that you were created to live. How do you steer your own life down the road that God said you should drive down? So are you ready to turn the wheel yourself? That's what I'm asking. Are you ready to turn the wheel yourself? If you think you are willing to try this, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to stand up. You don't actually have to drive the wheel. But if you're willing to be part of a community that tries to live this way, stand up. Literally, Literally yes. Actually, this is a literal instruction. You should stand up if you want to be part of a group like that. That's fine. I'm not. I'm not saying you need to reaccept Christ or anything like that. This is, this is just a commitment to I am going to do my best In fact, I'm going to make it a short-term commitment. I'm going to do my best this week to try to live out the things Jesus said. And I'm going to close this section with a word of prayer while you stand. Father God, thank you so much for sending your God to teach us what it really means to live in your kingdom. Help us as we seek out the paths that you have directed us towards. Help each and every one of us to recognize that we are poor in spirit, And teach us how to let you fill our lives with your spirit so that we can become the peacemakers you have commanded us to be. As we recognize the mercy that you show to us each day, help us to extend that mercy to those around us. Teach us how to see you clearly so that we cannot blind ourselves to your presence anymore. Mold us as we work at becoming your community rather than just being a room full of people. We ask all this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.